Casper uh, Berry, former man who lived in the Northeast and uh, and Cambridge economist. How the devil are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. We have a couple of things in common, although you were on Biker Grove and I wasn't. Would you like <laughs> to be? Would you have liked to be in Biker Grove? Is that um, a I know it's, yeah, I think if you'd give me the option when I was younger, definitely. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And if it led to me eventually owning a, a yellow fridge freezer in my um, in my bedroom, I'd definitely have done it. <laughs> um, uh, look, it's great to have you on. Obviously, I uh, saw you the other day at Wembley and managed to uh, just like annoy everyone during a game of poker. More of that later. Um, do you want to like maybe wherever you want to start? Yeah. Free, and let's like let's get to this point, and then we can kind of delve into a bit to decision making. Yeah, well, so let's let's start. Why why are we talking? You know, how did we meet? So I um, I speak about decision making, as you just said, and the word poker is relevant because I got into that whole subject through being a professional poker player. But what's the connection, first of all, between poker and decision making? It is that when you're playing poker, you're break it down fundamentally, allocating a scarce resource every ninety seconds or so. Right? under uncertainty. And that is the definition of decision-making according to Harvard Business School. Decision-making is the allocation of scarce resources under uncertainty. And in actual fact, when you break it down further, poker is uh, one of the most perfect environments in which to in which to analyze some of the most fundamental concepts of decision-making. So if you want to be a good poker player, you've got to learn the skills which are actually the same skills as if you were to to teach decision making rule. So that's how we met, and that's sort of um, that's what I do for clients day to day. But there's a sort of backstory to me, which because you've mentioned Biker Grove there, how did I get into all of that? Quite a random life that I had before then. Um, I was relatively academic at school. You know, we both we both went to Cambridge, so there's that part of the story. But obviously, at the age of sixteen, my life was turned upside down uh, with that Biker Grove audition. Um, did the first two series of that first one with Deck, yes, but Ant was not in it. He wasn't an original. We'll always, we'll always um, remind him of that. And then the second series, Ant and Deck, obviously went on to uh, much greater things than us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and, uh, and the legacy of that for me was I felt I want to be um, a film director. Right, this is going to sound really pretentious what I'm about to say, but it was like I did my first scene in Biker Grove, and it was like the finger of God came down and pointed at the director and went, "That's what you want to do with your life." I thought it just brings together everything that I'm interested in: drama, writing, music. Um, so I went to Cambridge not actually to do economics; that was my, you know, passport. But I went specifically to do the theatre, and obviously everyone knows the word footlights, but really that's a small part of, as you know, a much bigger scene at that time in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and that was the reason that I went there. I didn't do much work in my degree. In fact, I changed to anthropology, which, as you'll know and remember, was much less work. <laughs> um, and uh, still only got a 2-2. Um, but I had a lot of luck when I was there. I had my first screenplay produced by... Uh, film four before I'd even graduated and I was directing my first TV commercial at 18, 19 and winning RTS awards and things. So that part of my life went really well until I was about 26 when I'd written two feature films and done a lot of commercials and things. But I got to a point where I wasn't doing anything at that point anymore. Um, I was in what they call development hell in the film industry. And I mean, I just wasn't, I just had stopped working really. Uh, 
much more to say about that. But what is what is the effect of that? The effect of that was I thought I want to do something crazy with my life. I'm still young. I don't have a partner. I don't have kids. So I'm 26 years old. What can I do? And me and my buddy, we used to go on holiday to Las Vegas every six months. We used to play blackjack and roulette. So obviously we were gambling. We were just having fun, um, you know, losing between $500 and $1,000 in a week. And, um, and then in the summer of 99, my buddy went into the poker room. And that was it, really. I, I sat behind him for about four or five hours, just watching him for a bit. Loved the game, fascinated by it sat in the game myself. We played for 42 hours non-stop, nearly missed our plane home. And I said, that's what I want to do with my life. Um, and that was, you know, that's really set me on a path which brought me to here today. Oh, wow. Even more in common because I went to Cambridge to do rugby but used maths. But I then changed degree as well to economics, which was right. probably felt slightly easier than maths. But I yeah. you were above me. I was like there while you were there, and then I went down further, and you came down to economics. Amazingly, ended up with a two-one and almost got a first, which is remarkable. Given, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I am a geek of the highest order. <laughs> it sounds, I guess, like uh, well, as yeah, a few things. What, what heard an analogy did that? I don't know if you'd said it to me or whether I'd heard it somewhere else, but like. Just sport is poker, not chess. So lots of people think of it like chess, like all the information's on the table, yeah, whereas yeah. the poker is. And I love the way you brought the economic problem into this, but it is scarce yeah. resources under a degree. You know some of the information, don't that's you? It. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So chess and backgammon, you've got, I think you've got the spectrum here, right? You've got chess here, which is you know everything and there are really no uncertainties. There are actually some, but but you can see everything. There's no there's no third party, there's no random number generator. Then you've got backgammon here, which has a random number generator, but again, there's there's nothing uncertain. We can see everything. And then over here you've got poker, which is there's lots that we don't know, plus a random number generator. And so you're dealing with lots of different kinds of uncertainties. And I would identify four uncertainties to start going down this road. The first uncertainty is what do, what cards do your opponent have right so that is the uncertainty of the present you know what, what who who are you going to play that week for example who who's who's going to who's going to come out against you the second uncertainty is the cards that are yet to come so that's the the future uncertainty um and that for that you could literally cite things like you know which way the ball's going to bounce and just the things that you can't control about what's going to happen um the old butterfly effect you know I talk about the third uncertainty is what your opponents are going to do after you've done what you do. So it's human action, which of course is game theory. And then the fourth answer. I wondered when you were going to get oligopoly into this. And it is <laughs> excellent work, sir. Excellent. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, perfect competition. Yeah. Um, and and the fourth uncertainty is what you're what you're gonna do after your opponent's done their thing. So this is an interesting one because you think that you know this, right? Because you you control you think you can control this. But actually, when someone pushes twenty thousand dollars into a pot or whatever it is, I can't think of a rugby analogy off the, off the, in, the in the moment. Um, you sort of know what you should do, you sort of know what you could do, but that's not necessarily what you actually do do. Um, and so, I guess in rugby terms, the the link that I would draw directly to that was as Sir Clive Woodward's teacup, thinking clearly under pressure, which I don't need to tell you. You know, he would drill the team. You've got that many minutes on the clock that's the formation you know they're in possession of the ball and what do you do so you know drilling that idea of they can make decisions because like a pilot flying a plane you've been through so many of those situations you know in the training ground or in the training room and, and poker players are exactly the same the person who has thought most 
about the plethora of situations that you could be in away from the table is the person who's most likely to execute excellently in the moment at the table. Got me uh, thinking about lots of things. And I, I love, I mean, again, having seen you in action and I'm definitely thinking this is a pretty cool job, like sat behind the poker table, like helping people explore their lives through poker. Yeah, yeah just like some stuff like interdependence, like lots of coaching, lots of team stuff is improv, really. You don't know how the opponent's going to interact. No. You've also got to be aware of the type of things that are going to trigger you, I guess, to make poor decisions or things that, you know, so happened with my son the other day where I was just past his driving test. I'd worked out like, this is the conversation I'm going to have. I'm going to walk in the room. I'm going to, going to do it like this. And then he turned around. And uh, when I suggested the, the green, uh, the, the, the green things on his car would make him more safe. He, he politely told me to F off. <laughs> At which point I completely lost my shit. <laughs> and so like, you just don't know, do you, how you're going to react. And yeah. you've done it once. So I guess I, this is where I was going with you around decision-making. Now, I've done it once. If I had that again, because I had I'd kind of practiced it in my head, but I hadn't practiced it properly, and mm. I didn't know that that was about to come at me. So, mm. like, I'm assuming, like, as a poker player, as a person who's, you know, who can win or lose based upon good or bad decisions, um, you, you know, planning, but also, like, reflecting – practicing, doing it under pressure, you know, would be like super important for you. Yeah, all of those things. And what, what your example there makes me think of is this idea of of, um, of detachment, right, which, which, which we need to be careful about because I'm sure I don't need to, to tell you about the work of um, Antonio Damasio, who is a psychologist um, uh, who talks about um, somatic marking, which is this idea that every experience that we have in our lives is marked in the sense of our brain is like a Rolodex. It doesn't remember the actual thing that we see and the thing that we were thinking. It, it, it remembers things in terms of what he calls the somatic marking, which is literally like the imprint of the uh, adrenaline um, or and other hormones throughout our body. So that's what we're remembering. Now, the point that I'm making there is, and, and Antonio Damasio, one of his big points, is that we do need emotion. Right. The emotions are good. It's not Phineas Gage, is it, who had the, the pipe down his head. But I think it's one of Damasio's patients where he recalls the story of this guy who didn't have any emotional attachment to anything. He didn't have any feelings of, you know, joy or sadness about anything. And he couldn't make a decision about anything to the point that the therapist would say at the end of the session. So do you want Tuesday or Friday? And the guy would literally just sit there. Um, I think sort of endlessly just flicking between Tuesday and Friday because he had no feelings about which day was good or better, right? So emotions are a good part of our decision-making. And if we go into it, we'll talk about utility theory later on, which is the sense in which the way in which we think about upsides and downsides when we make decisions is really important. But what you want to do is equate that emotion that you attach to upsides and downsides so it's proportionate. A, so, and so A, proportionate, so you feel good about upsides, but not excessively good, and bad about downsides, because that will help you in your decision-making, but not excessively bad, um, but also that the line is not too steep, right? So you feel a bit good, but not massively good, and a bit bad, but not massively bad. And I don't mean disproportionate there, I mean excessively. 
Um, so that's good when it comes to decision making. And and so actually one of the best tips that you can have at the poker table, which I do with some um, two guys we talked about in our little pre-chat, Pete Lindsay and Mark Borden, who did a lot of work psychologically for British cricket and, and now work for lots of different companies. But just like a really simple tool, which is just count to five before you ever go all in at a poker table. And you do see pros doing this, making this mistake. And they really shouldn't. You should never snap call like this just count to five just have that moment of detachment from yourself and the decision because you know before you fly off the handle in those kind of situations just just checking yourself and just asking who's making this decision and why am i doing it and is it a product of emotion can stop us from making bad decisions a lot of the time just triggered me on uh, i was just i've been reading a google works book at the moment and they right. talk about hiring slow Right. So yeah. often, yeah. like, rather than making this, you know, decision, you've already, like, you're just confirming your biases and you're just yeah. actually taking a bit more time in it. And, yeah, a good shout-out to the MindFlick team because, yeah, one of the things that, that I guess Spotlight makes you aware of or think more about is, like, what's my sensitivity to, like, reward and threat? Mm. And even, like, I don't know they work with the cricket team, but it's interesting, isn't it, just seeing how – the mindset of the England cricket team is like, it's fascinating at the moment, isn't it? Like declaring on day one, completely changing the field on day two, like just stuff that, you know, you might, uh, and I guess my experience of sport is often that, you know, we have some real high highs and then we, we you know, we kind of go like this. Uh, the Chiefs who are in Super Rugby final next weekend of, made a real emphasis around neutral, more neutral reviews. So often that's interesting. we can be, um, and I guess this is something interesting poker, isn't it? Like you can make a really good decision and lose. So like yeah. outcome bias, you know, you might go, oh my God, but actually I made a really good decision. And yeah. yes, there's a, you know, there's percentages and there's a bit of luck in going on as well. I mean, it, it's everything, honestly, in poker. So we need to think about poker. So, so listen, a lot of people will say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pull back because we use the, the, the hot word luck there, right? So what is luck? Okay. Yeah, so, I was scared about using the word luck with you there, but I, I, think, I think it's like 85% of the time I would win this hand, 15% I would lose it. I right. made a good decision. Yeah. But I, I guess I think of it a bit like sport. Like we, we, we've, we've had more high... Let's if we were to classify opportunities as gold, silver, bronze, yeah. we've had twice as many gold opportunities as them, but we've hit the post. Yeah, and they haven't hit the post, and so, but so, but then we can't reflect on the game and go, oh, we were terrible. No, exactly, and that and that's what a, a poker player has to do. Let, let me jump to the end of the story. The end of the story is a, a good poker player genuinely, in a lot of situations, is completely uninterested about whether they even won the hand or not. Right, that's not always totally true because it that might dictate whether you made a good call or not. That's the outcome aspect of it. But whether the heart comes or not is completely irrelevant to us. Um, and the, it's almost impossible to play poker at the highest levels now without thinking like this. Because what's what, all that's important is: did I get the puzzle right? Yeah, was the probability that I applied to it right? Were the questions that I'm asking correctly? Was my equation formed correctly? And the equation will give us what's called an expectation, which is our long-term value of this opportunity, according to the different decisions that we could make. 
Um, and what we're trying to do is maximize long-term value. And the actual outcome on this occasion um, in poker, because usually we have the luxury of not doing it for someone else, you know, uh, although you might be backed right in this day and age, but you're doing it for yourself. So you don't have a boss standing over you. That's all that's important is the, is the expectation. Now, the thing about luck is, right, what is luck? What is luck? Luck, and a lot of people go, mm, I think you're overthinking it. <laughs> it's not a definition <laughs> of luck. Luck is your, first of all, it's the impact on your life as a result of that which you cannot control, right? And it is measured in terms of your short-term deviation from your long-term expectation, okay? So if we toss a coin 10 times and you win seven of them, obviously you're not better at tossing coins than me. You just got just got lucky at that point. That was your short-term deviation from your long-term expectation, which is to win five of them, right? And as I don't need to tell you as a mathematician, if we toss that coin a million times, proportionately, the, the amount of deviation will become less. So the luck has evened out. There is an interesting little nugget within that, which is the actual number of, of iniquity between us, the more we toss the coin, the actual number becomes bigger. So it's only four difference, seven to three, whereas it would be like 529,238 versus, you know, 461,000, 71,000, whatever. <laughs> um, can you do that in your head? I can't. Uh, <laughs> The actual, the actual deviation has become bigger. It's become like 60,000, but proportionately it's become much smaller. So luck is your short-term deviation from your long-term expectation. That is the amount that you differ from that word that I used before, your expectation. And, and, and therefore, luck is a short-term phenomenon. And that's why, you know, we don't worry about it because as poker players, we just think in the long term. Now, I think sport is interesting because, A, you don't necessarily have the luxury of getting to the long term. Well, right? I'm seeing you work with football. I'm seeing you work with football where there isn't long term is probably a year, eighteen right. months. Right, and that's the so so. And then the second thing is, I, I I'm really interested in, and, and maybe you know you can answer this. To what extent is a season a long term? Right, <laughs> do, do do the ref decisions even out over the course of the season? I don't know. I can tell you in poker it's roughly a hundred thousand hands, but that differs wildly in terms of the number of people sitting around the table, whether it's limit or no limit. You know the kind of the style of the different players sitting around the table. But over that period of time, roughly a hundred thousand hands, the the, the 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 data that you have should be statistically significant. Okay, but what's interesting is what did Alex Ferguson say in his first, you know, week, I think, day, his first press conference as the Man United manager all that time ago in, what was it, the mid-90s, early 90s? No, late 80s. He said, this is a five-year project, right? So good decision-makers fight. They, part of good decision-making is the process of fighting to have a longer period of time before my decisions are... Uh, um, uh, uh, judged right because it might well be the case in fact often is the case that the right thing to do for the long term is going to create a lot of variance and maybe negative outcomes in the short term oh my god like honestly i could sit around a poker table with you all day i'm I'm writing some stuff down that i'm that's making me think about around decision making so and whether or not they're like, I, I know you talked about like your fundamentals and some of the skills, but um, knowing your opponent is probably quite important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Knowing, having, so so knowing your opponent, so a lot of people think poker is about several things, right? They think it's about poker faces. It's not. 
fact that you can play poker online and, and most people do shows obviously it had much less to do with poker face than people thought or it's about or it's about so and and likewise you i mean you, if you put some shades and a cap on no one can see your face anyway um or it's about looking into someone's soul and judging what they're going to do now what where where there's truth in that is what you just said there is it's about knowing your opponent but what that gives you is a, a probability estimate okay for what they're likely to do in a specific situation we don't know what they're going to do but if you can start to whittle it down to their 10 percent likely to call versus 90 percent likely to call even 10 percent likely to call versus 30 percent likely to call will genuinely i actually do this in one of my sessions with quite a simple situation the difference between 10 percent likelihood and 30 percent likelihood would change whether you were right to raise or not the, the, the difference between whether they're 10% likely to be bluffing or 30% likely to be bluffing will change whether you're right to call or not, okay? We don't know that they're bluffing. You can't know that they're bluffing, but that probability assessment, which is gained from two things, A, the knowledge of poker as a game in general, so you're assessing that in the abstract, how likely are people to bluff? Broadly 10%, right? If they're moderate players, aggressive players, much more. But then obviously in the specific... How likely is this player to bluff? But then you've got how likely are they to bluff in general, right? How likely are they to bluff me? How likely are they to bluff me on the river? How likely are they to bluff me on the river when there's three or four of a suit on board? And so all of those different probability assessments could be completely different. You're going to be better at maths than me. And then I guess uh, also like what information you share. So something that frustrated me was... Um, like when people won and they just don't reveal their cards. So you said, oh, you can reveal your cards or not. And people rarely revealed because, again, they, they, they probably want to think about what information they share. And, and, when, and when they do, they might just go, it's, this is going to be when I provide misinformation. This is, I guess, more likely that I've, I've done what I wouldn't normally do when I give this information. But, again, just got me thinking a lot about, like, even just – you know, converse, you know, conversations you have with people, but also like the the tactical warfare that exists in a in a, an invasion game of sport. Absolutely, uh, you, you've nailed it. Broadly speaking, in a game of limited information, you should you should be showing as little information as possible. Okay, you, you should you should um, not be giving information away. So don't show your cards. But exactly what you just said there, uh, you should also. Poker is a game where you should be uh, um, influencing people to make bad probability assessments of things, right? Yeah. And so if you can show your cards in such a way that is, I use the word training, training people to think certain things in a way that isn't too obvious. I mean, if someone always shows their cards when they've got the hand and then sometimes folds them, obviously, clearly, they're training you to think that they've always got the hand. Right. And that is a perfectly valid thing to do. But if you've got half a brain, you will know that you are being trained. And so in actual fact, you should be calling them more often because their training should have the intention of allowing them to bluff more regularly. So you should be calling them more often in that situation. So you probably should be doing the opposite of what people are trying to train you to do. I mean, you spoke about it, but where does like looking into the soul sit? So, I mean, imagine as more of a, if you've been playing poker a long time, like, I don't know what your views are on, you know, headphones, sunglasses, caps, but like it obviously means you can hide a lot of information. What are your views around like cues and noticing skills for poker players? 
So first thing is, I'm I'm someone who owns a four hundred dollar pair of of Blue Shark sunglasses at poker, right? Which are polarized. The reason they're four hundred dollars is because they're polarized to have they're mirrors from the outside, okay? But there's no light loss from the inside. So in the early days, I used to wear standard mirrors, but you lose a lot of information. You think about what sunglasses do; they lose light, okay? And light is just information. So everything is more dim. And less perceptible and given that you're trying to get as much information from your opponents as possible yeah they can't see that much of your face a bit a bit worse but you now can't see anything a bit worse right so my blue shark sunglasses are my, my sort of pride and joy and i'm just saying that by virtue of being honest and upfront the the key point is Doyle brunson never wore sunglasses right stewie younger actually did but a lot of the chip reese you know a lot of the great players of old did not wear sunglasses because just covering up that part of your face, there is some information that your pupils and your eyes are going to give away, but it's not much. Most of your what's called leakage is going to come through your arms and your legs. And one of the reasons for that is that people are very good at lying here. We actually spend a large part of our day lying here, right? Every time you say someone looks great in that coat or, you know, it's lovely to see you again, you know, we're brilliant at lying here okay so so most of your leakage is going to come from like touching face touching the ends of the nose people who were humming and and you can't see but waggling their leg and then they stop waggling their leg or stop tapping the table that's because they don't want to be giving information away because they're worried about you seeing into their soul because we all had that experience of our parents knowing when we were lying and when we were being naughty when they came <laughs> in the room so we got we closed down we stopped doing those things which give information so so the, there are those sorts of tales. However, sunglasses are not really going to change it that much. Again, I used to listen to music, right? But this is a confession. It's not that great to listen to music. It stops you having to talk to boring people next to you. But a lot of the information you get around a poker table is audio, is oral, right? So you're 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 blocking yourself off that information as well. I completely sympathise with the poker player who has to sit there for ten hours a day, who just wants to get his cap on, put his shades on, put his headphones on, and just not you know worry about the world too much. But the bottom line is that they're closing themselves off to a lot of information and not actually obscuring that much information uh, of themselves and their opponents. So these things, broadly speaking, aren't that great. Just to come back to your key central point. Okay, one thing I would say is a good little tell that someone's played a little bit of poker but not much is the phrase play the man, not the cards. Okay, that means they've played a little bit of poker, not much. They've read that in a book. They think they know what they're talking about. Point number one, your cards are hugely important. Okay, because if your opponents won't fold, if you're playing a big table of loose players, right, there's going to be a showdown at some point. And if you've only got seven two or if you've only got, you know, middle pair, that's all you've got. So your cards are important. Okay. But play the man, not the cards is, again, it makes, it's quite sexy. You know, you've watched James Bond, but what you're really playing is the situation. The man is not as important as your position, for example, in relation to the dealer button. The man is not important as the number of players in the hand, for example. If you're playing this player, but there are another five players in the hand, it means nothing. Um, the man is not as important as your history with that particular man over the last three hands, because whether they're pissed off with you because you, you've outdrawn them or had better cards than them in the last three hands that you've played with them, the last three hands that have been played at the whole table. So poker is a game of positions, uh, sorry, situations which are holistic. It's not a game of cards. It's not a game of individual battles. It's not really a game of staring into someone's soul. It's a game of thinking about the totality of the situation and trying to make a probability assessment and putting that into an expectation calculation. And the final thing I'm going to say about this, Rusty, is 
that is really boring. It is way more boring than most people who want to play poker, who, who you know, for the romance or the excitement or the time with their mates. It's, you know, to do poker properly, well, professionally, uh, it's a grind. You made me, uh, Andy Abraham, uh, who's like, uh, yeah, I'll send you the podcast, actually, uh, spoke on uh, um, a podcast about, like, coaching being bets. So okay. each time you have a go, you know, you, you do something, you have an interaction, you change something, it's a bet. You don't mm. know the outcome. Mm. Um, but again, I would say the same with coaching. Like, people almost want to get to, like, I'm coaching, like, but without maybe do, putting in some of the, the hard work, the reflection, the losing a few hands along the way. Yeah. Um, I was well, thinking again about like, like the way you speak about this, like, like I remember coaching moments, probably like, I probably remember the highs and the lows. I probably miss out a lot of middle stuff. Do you have a, like a, a good memory of like loads of hands and what we should on? have? Yeah, you should. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and claim that I do now. Um, or that I ever had a great memory, but the, but the person with the best memory is going to be served well by it. Yeah, uh, because now, of course, online you don't need so much of a memory because you've got a, you've got a spreadsheet. Do you know what I mean? You've got a heads up display. The heads up display is going to tell you the the likelihood that this person raises before the flop, or the likelihood that this person calls one bet or or two bets before the flop. So so that is your outsourced memory in some way. But yeah, in the, in the live game, both twenty years ago and still having a good memory for those kinds of things and factoring those in are essential. I think, you know, Stu the Kidunga, who I referred to, the guy with the little little blue shades, who's widely regarded as the best player ever, even better than Doyle, died young, um, also had a, a photographic memory. But can I pick up on something you said, which was the which was the bets thing of coaching, right? Because I, I will take it further and more fundamental and hopefully more sort of thought catalyzing in a way, which is that everything that you do is an action with a value. And let me relate this to sport immediately. And sport is great when it comes to decision-making because it's an arena that that um, that collects a lot of statistics, right? So Jeff Colvin, as a guy, um, and I got this from Matthew Saeed's uh, good book, Bounce, which I'm sure you've read. Um, Jeff Colvin did a study of ice skaters in the United States. And he was really fascinated by the fact that um, some ice skaters uh, seem to win all the gold medals, right? Um, it was really concentrated in a, in a few. Uh, and, and, and not spread out through the field. And he was like, you know, why is that? What do they do? What's the secret? What's the difference that makes a difference? And he, I think he went into the study thinking that it might be the way that they were brought up and their sort of parents' attitude towards success and that sort of thing, but he couldn't find any significant correlation there. So he thought it might be that these, maybe these ice skaters were winners in everything they did, like they were academically good and no correlation there across other things they did in their lives. So some correlation definitely with practice, so you talk about that in different podcasts. Practice makes it at least permanent, if not perfect. But the single strongest correlation that he could find was with the number of times they fell over during practice. Right? That was the that was the that was the strongest correlation. Now, the way that I look at that is that that's because trying this new move, right? Um, whatever it's going to be, a three sixty turn or something. The action, each action of trying that is an is an action that has a value. You are allocating a scarce resource that is your time, your energy, and to a certain extent, your pride, right? Because even good players and the best of us don't like to fall over during practice, right? Um, and all of those resources are allocating something which has a value, but which is only realized after a period of time. So I talk about J-curve, right? And this is, I think, must be what a lot of coaching is. 
things get worse before they get better. You try something new, you fail a bit before you succeed. Now, I know I've used the F word fail there, and it sounds like I'm a motivational speaker, but it's not about that. It's about a very specific thing, which is if you're doing actions with high values, but which are only realized after a period of time, um, you know, actually what you're doing there is probably a, an action which has a greater return on investment than actions which are, you know, pretty successful and anyone would do them because there's no pride or energy or deferment on the line. And and, and most people were doing that kind of practice. So that sort of practice, which, which engages with the Jacob, which you see out there, you know, when we tell stories about JK Rowling sending off the book to 100 publishers before one says yes, right? It's the same sort of thing. It's like, um, you know, a lot of us don't write novels because we're terrified of getting those rejection letters. And when you put yourself, when you do that action, sending a book off to a publisher, most of which gets nothing back or literally gets pain back, if you're the person who can soak up that pain, that action has a value and it will be realised. It's just realised every now and again. And that's like calling on, on the flop with four to a flush. You're only going to make that flush 20% of the time on the next card. So four out of five times, you're going to be let down. But if the pot is great enough, or a bit of a technical term, if the implied odds are great enough, that is when you make the flush, if you can extract enough from your opponent to justify that 20% success rate, then that action has a value and that value is positive. So I think that's the most important idea when it comes to our decision making is everything we do, not just coaching, not just recruitment, everything has a value. And what we should be doing as decision makers is maximizing that value, which is our return on investment. I guess I was, as you were talking about it, J-curve, my son will immediately think of the Marshall Learner conditions. So there's some more economics for you. Uh, <laughs> just, the, yeah, maybe just got me thinking about a few things, actually. So reflection, Super mm -hmm. important. So mm -hmm. you could keep going down with the J curve mm -hmm. if you know, uh, without like appropriate reflection on the right people around you. Yeah. Uh, environment, like super important, like if there's this short termism. So it made me think a bit about, I guess, Brighton and Brentford, who probably in the long run have probably defied the odds in football and you know, lower budgets, able to achieve more things, probably because they've done some stuff differently. Um, and they probably had some bumps along the way, but as in, I just read a few things about them recently. They're, they're talking about the long term in terms of almost like 10 years. Absolutely. Lots Absolutely. of other people are talking about the long term in like months. Absolutely. I think Southampton got rid of one of their managers after three months this season. Like, And maybe they were right to. That doesn't mean, you know, I don't know. getting rid of someone is the wrong thing to do. But Brian and Brentford are... Um, Brighton and Brentford are the apotheosis of what I'm talking about. So, so Brighton is run by Tony, is owned by Tony Bloom, who is a professional poker player and sports better, right? Who is literally deploying the essence of what I talk about every single yeah. day. And his protege, I forget his name, is the guy that owns Brentford. So these two clubs with these smaller budgets are what are they doing? They're maximizing their returns on investments. They're engaging in these actions on a daily basis that have a higher value than the clubs with the bigger budgets are engaging in, but which which increase return on investment. And the and the popularized version of that is Moneyball, um, which has you know in in, in which I know that this is the fictionalized account of it, but it's a fictionalized one fundamental that, that sums it up is okay so we don't have a we don't have much of a recruitment budget with the Oakland A's how do we how do we maximize that what you do is you find correlations 
So you find the correlation between the thing that's measured and the thing that you're trying to achieve. And in Moneyball, that is games are won by getting on base. Okay. So we're going to buy players that get on base, even though this guy pitches a bit funny, right? Even though this guy's got an odd looking wife, right? So he doesn't seem to be like a superstar, even though, you know, what's the, there are other examples of that, that these guys were not a team of superstars. They didn't look like Calvin Klein models, which is what those coaches have been looking for for the previous 50 years. So there was what I call a negative metric associated with that, right? That is the same negative metric that Jeff Colvin notes in the ice skaters, okay? They fall over more often during practice. That is the same negative metric that Ryanair had during the period that it was the fastest growing airline in Western Europe. Can you guess what it was? Ryanair's negative metric? Because you might have been one of them. I know I was. Probably people that complained because they exactly adapted. That. Exactly that. Highest yeah. number of passenger complaints. Now, no one wants to. No one wants their business to have a high number of client complaints, right? No one wants that. No one wants to fall over more often during practice. No one wants to assemble a team of odd bods, right? But if you want to maximize your returns on investment in a competitive market where everyone's where that is what you that that is the competitive edge, there will always be a negative metric to it. Then you get information and you act on it. And yeah, yeah, it's just, it's helpful information. Yeah. Often people aren't viewing it as helpful information. No. What um and just to paint the picture of you sat around a table with, you know, in, in, in our case with the FA technical directors playing a bit of poker with someone really annoying like me, like chatting through stuff. Um <laughs> What are the other, are there any other like aha moments? Like, I just love the fact that I guess you're informally trying to connect up with them and, and help them translate their everyday world to through poker, really. I mean, obviously, it sounds like the perfect job. So, I think there's another aha moment, and it's, it's this really, which is um, so I'm going to use the phrase, did I miss a bet? Okay. And it, and it and it's comes back to the same fundamental idea that I've been talking about for the last 10 minutes, which is the value of an action, right? So, if you, if you, I mean this with all due respect to anyone who's played poker socially, which I which I actually don't like to do, partly for this reason, okay, because when I'm when I was playing poker professionally, I could think about the infinite period of time, because I would be playing for effectively an infinite period of time. That wasn't infinite, but three years is a long time. Okay, every day for ten hours a day is a long time. And if you play with your mates, you're playing for these four hours and you want a good experience. And unfortunately, poker is a game where you can't force a good experience because you can have good cards or you can have bad cards. And as we discussed, the point about luck is that luck over the long term evens out, right? But it's this. When you play with your mates, if you make a uh, four of a kind, right, you're going to feel great, aren't you? Okay, Especially if, if you know one of your mates has got you know full house, because you're going to make a lot of money in that situation. And that's going to feel fantastic. But here's the fundamental concept of poker and I think sport and just all allocation of scarce resource under uncertainty. If with that four of a kind, you didn't make more money than your opponents would have made had they had that four of a kind in that situation, right? then you just lost money. In your fun game, you feel fantastic because you're raking in a pot of $2,200, $2,000. But in the professional game, the thing about we're completely immune to the actual results is if we didn't make more money than this person and this person would have made, 
then in the long run, they're also going to get four of a kind, right? They won't get it in that situation at that time of night with those people. They won't get the exact situation, but that's where the long run is all about evening out, okay? They're all going to get four of a kind. They're all going to get straight flushes. They're all going to get busted flushes. We're all going to get pair of aces beaten, right? The only question is, did you in that situation make more money with your good situations than they would have made if they'd been in that situation? And did you lose less money in your bad situations than they would have made? That's the only situation. And so what happens is if you get four of a kind, right, and you win the hand and you're raking in the pot and there's this little thing really gnawing away at you, you turn to your opponent, you turn to a guy sitting next to you because poker, poker tables become really territorial in this odd way. These two guys are your friends and those guys are your enemies, even though I don't know these guys. You turn to the guy sitting next to you and you go, do you think I missed a bet there? And what that means is, did I not maximise the mm. value that I could have made? Yeah, and and that is what decision making is really all about. I love that stepping into your mind there because I'm I'm not thinking like you're thinking about poker. So the and the flip of that, of course, is like when I lose, I've got to lose as little as possible. Yep. So like I can also celebrate like not losing as badly as I could have lost. Right. Exactly that. You can go home in poker with ten thousand more dollars in your pocket, and genuinely, this is this is brings us right back to the beginning of the conversation, which is you know things that we can't control and post match analysis and all the rest of it. So you can be going with ten thousand dollars in your pocket, and genuinely, you should feel like shit because you got that as a result of two lucky breaks and the hands where you should have made a lot more money, you just didn't, you know. And 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 conversely, you could go ten thousand dollars down, and you should feel absolutely elated because anybody else in those situations would have lost twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, um, and so and you know that's 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 where it's all. It's, everything is against expectation, and that is how Brighton and Brentford are thinking. They're constantly thinking, "What is our expectation?" And as long as we're exceeding expectation, then we're doing all we can. By definition, that is doing all that you can because that is maximizing your results with whatever resources you have to invest and the bottom line is probably less so now with the television money but in order to come up through those those um those leagues they would have had less money for a long period of time than their opponents and that's what the competitive advantage is yeah i think uh i work with a couple of teams and joel ab describes it well where he just talks about we've just got a different scoreboard to everyone else right and I like that. And again, it makes me think of Sam Vesti at Northampton Saints. And when you speak to the other coaches, they get really annoyed with him because he'll go, we played well and we lost. I'm really happy. Yeah. And we played badly and we won. I'm pretty pissed off. Yeah. And the other coaches just can't because they're so focused on outcome. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that the people that spend time with you leave with all kinds of different individual reflections around actually and need to be more aware of my emotions and their impact on decision-making. I probably need to think about long-term. I might need to recalibrate, you know, what I, how I evaluate my decision-making. Um, I, I imagine people are leaving with all kinds of new ways of doing things. I hope so. But, you know, where I think the, where I think the uh, intersection of it with sport is interesting is because, you know, Fans probably don't think like this, like, and I, and I'm not even saying that they should. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You pay your hard-earned money, you know, to go and see your team on a Saturday afternoon. 
and they don't win, some guy comes out and goes, yeah, we performed really well against expectation. It's like, screw that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going home depressed today because we've lost to our local rivals. And I, I completely get that. And I think that is, as this mindset proliferates throughout football, and I imagine rugby and other sports, I think one of the most interesting challenges facing professional sport is how you reconcile an increasingly different way that the fans and the and the, the executors are thinking. Because I'm not sure that that has any um, analogy really in the last hundred years of sport. Yeah, that's got me. That's got me definitely. Yeah, because uh, Brighton are an interesting one because they've like done amazing this season, but they've had a couple of like four nil, five nil losses. Like they've taken some big defeats as well, and like your messaging to the fans and how you communicate that stuff without giving them too much information around what you're measuring is, um, is definitely a challenge. Yeah. And, 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 you know, what, what you should be saying to a Brighton fan is like, you know, just take the step back, you know, look at the big picture. And that's also, by the way, what you should be saying to your boss, if you're in a company and you're deploying this kind of strategy, because you're doing the right thing for the long term. I always, I always get defensive when, when someone comes to one of my seminars and they think that what I'm saying is, um, I don't know, sort of like be be indefinitely patient or, you know, put up with bad performance in the short term. None of those things are what I'm saying. I only want anyone to do any of this because by maximising returns on investment, it will maximise your profits at the end of the day, right? The question is, do you have a whole day to get to the end yeah. of before someone fires you? Because if you don't, don't do, don't do these things, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you have to work within the reality of the of the parameters that the world gives you and you can fight to change those parameters. Like Warren Buffett goes, don't buy shares in Boxer Hathaway that you don't want to give to your grandchildren. That's like his Alex Ferguson speech. That's like, give me as much time as possible. But at the end of the day, if, if people don't give you that much time, then you need to work with the reality of the situation. I think. You've hurt my brain. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. Uh, you're definitely, uh, you're definitely the more intelligent one in Cambridge. I wish I'd, uh, wish I'd concentrate. You've got a better degree. <laughs> <laughs> Anthropology is a good degree. Um, if people want to reach out, where's the where's the best place to uh, to reach out? Caspar uh, at casparberry.com. Uh, my website's down. Again, we discussed that in the pre-chat. Mixed feelings about that. So don't go to Casper. You're on, you're on LinkedIn as well. So people can yeah, find LinkedIn. You. And also, I mean, genuinely, if people want me as a, so I do two things, which is training seminars and speaking at conferences. And even both of those things, if you go to any of what's called the speaker bureau, so if you just Google Casper Berry, yeah. uh, a load of names will come up and they're people who can book me as a third party. So that's fine. But Caspar at casparberry.com is my email. And I am recommending booking you. Uh, mate, have an amazing day. Great to check. Thank you. Thank you.